Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you just to guide and lead us as we look at your word. We thank you for each person that's here. And we thank you for the beautiful weather that we're experiencing and that you love us enough to give that to us and that you will teach us tonight in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 18. While he spoke these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay your hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and he and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I will be whole. But Jesus turned him around, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has made you whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the minstrels and the people making a noise. And he said unto them, Give place, the, the maid is not dead, but sleeps. And they laughed him to scorn. And when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose, and the fame thereof went abroad to all the land. So we're going to look at this, uh, these two bits of stories here and consider uh, their counterpart, which is in Mark. And it says, uh, you know, while Jesus was still teaching to the Pharisees, a certain ruler came and worshipped him. And this literally means worship in this case. He was bowing down and, and admitting who he was. And here it says, in Matthew's account, it says, My daughter is even now dead, but come lay your hand upon her, and she shall live. This is a phrase that actually comes from further in when Jesus is on his way. And I want to just turn to Mark because Mark gives us a little more details on it. Mark chapter 5. Uh, Mark uh, does a lot more uh, information on this. And starting at verse 21. Excuse me, 25. I did want 21, sorry. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet, and besought him greatly, saying, My daughter lies at the point of death. I pray you come and lay your hands on her, and she may be healed, and, and she may live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him or pushed against him. Then we have the, the story of the, the woman who gets healed by touching him, and she says the same thing that it pretty much says there by touching him. The only thing in this case, in Mark, in Mark, it tells us in verse 30 that Jesus asks, Who touched me? And asked her to pay attention, you know, be willing to admit to what she had you know, done and why. And uh, so there's a little more story in, in, in Mark. And then uh, verse 35, And wh while he yet spoke, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble you the master any further? And as soon and soon, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he came into the ruler's house and healed the daughter. So, but we see that when Jairus went to Jesus, it was with the hope that Jesus would come to heal his daughter. But he has faith 
in the midst of all of this to say, okay, keep coming. <laughs> Even though you're, my daughter's dead, keep coming. And we want to just think about this. This is a leader of the synagogue. The scribes and Pharisees in general were against Jesus. But there were certain ones that looked at him and followed him. Jairus is going to be one of them. Uh, Nicodemus is one of them that follows after him. There are a number of them that are really looking at Jesus and saying, this man must be from God. Why did they come to that conclusion? Well, he's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's, he's doing everything that the righteous are supposed to do, the things that they've seen the prophets do all through the Old Testament. And Jesus is doing all the things that a prophet's supposed to do, and the king, and he's taking authority. They're listening to his instructions and his teachings. And one of the things that was often said by, about Jesus and the, by the people was, he speaks as one with authority. It wasn't him just saying, well, uh, so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said that, and quoting a whole bunch of people. When he spoke, he's saying, he didn't quote other people. He didn't, he didn't lay out a fact of all these other people agree with me and this is, what, this is what we say and this is what I'm going to teach. He just said, this is it. This is what is taught. And so Jairus is coming to him and he says, his daughter is dying. And you've got to think, you know, it appears to be his only daughter by the, by the way this has so been written up. She's 12 years old, we find out in... in, in uh, in, in Mark. So she's a young girl, technically in that, age, in that day and age, just getting into the marrying age where they would have her espoused and, and married off. If you got to be 17 or 18 years old and you weren't married in, the, in those days, you were, you were an old maid. And so she was getting to that age of being married and, and she got sick. And if she, especially if he's the only daughter, this is a heartbreak. And anybody who's ever had a sick child knows what it's like to be worried about your child. If, if they're sick for any length of time, you're worried that they're not going to make it. And he goes to Jesus and says he worships him. And literally in Mark, it says he bows down at his feet, puts him into the right, right place, says, you know, my daughter is even now dead. Come and lay your hand on her and she shall live is what it says that's faith now, jesus if you just come and you touch her she'll be she'll be she'll be healed i wonder how come and, and i don't know why how come he just didn't pray at that moment they felt the need to go and touch her what did jairus ask for oh, he just jairus asked for it if you remember the centurion that we talked about a couple weeks ago he said all you have to do is speak and my servant will be healed because I am a man under authority and you, and I recognize that you are under authority. Jairus felt that Jesus had to touch him. He didn't have enough faith to say, all you got to do is speak it. Could Jesus have spoke it? Absolutely. He was meeting this man's request. If Jairus had come and said, would you just speak and say, and my daughter will be healed, Jesus would have spoken and Jairus' daughter would have been healed. We can pray for somebody when we're 8,000 miles away from them and say, God healed this person and they can be healed. God is not limited by distance He's not or, or proximity. He says, Jairus said, I want you to come touch my daughter. Now, why was this? Because all, almost everything in the Old Testament was they had to be touched. And here, well, yeah, Matthew's with him. They're all, they're with him right now. 
and he's only going to take three of them in, according to Mark. When they go into the house, he only takes... Well, Mark wasn't even a disciple. <laughs> he, was, he, he is a follower of Christ, but he's not a disciple. He's uh, John Mark, who went on the first missionary trip with uh, Paul and left... <laughs> He's the one that he's the one that left the trip, abandoned Paul in the middle of the uh, Paul and Barnabas on the middle of the middle of the trip, and then Barnabas took him out on the second trip, which was in one sense was really good because now you have two missionaries that teams going out instead of one. So, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't. Didn't really say why they didn't get along. Didn't get along because Paul held it against him until later on that he left the mission trip. Well, it tells us why he left. He left because things got too hard. He didn't like the, the hard times and the, and the rough, rough road. And Paul held it against him for a long time. But at the end, he says, and send, and send John, John Mark to me because he's become precious to me. So he did end up forgiving, forgiving him. He had a change of heart. But when Barnabas wanted to take him on the second trip, he says, oh, no, I'm not taking that loser with me. He bailed on us the first time. I'm not taking him again. Uh, basically, is what he, in our in our parlance, that's exactly what he was saying. You know, he, I'm not taking him. He quit on us the first time. I'm not giving him a second chance. Paul, for all the facts that he taught about grace and mercy, you know, obviously had problems with some people that he had trouble showing grace and mercy to. But that's like all of us. We all have that same people. There's some people that we can show grace and mercy to real easy, and there's for all of us. There's certain people in our life that it's just hard because they something about them irritates us to the point where it becomes hard to minister that way to them. And Paul with John Mark, you know, had a little bit of a problem with him. He bailed on him. He did not have a lot of respect for somebody who would quit in the middle of something. And it took him a long time to get over that. So yeah, that's who, that's who is, who wrote the book of Mark. So Jesus arose and, and followed him, and his disciples followed him, which means there's a whole group of people headed to Jairus' home. <laughs> and because this is not just, when we read disciples, it's not just talking about the 12 disciples when it mentions this in most cases. Because disciple means a learner. All right? And this is something we've covered a couple of times. In, in, in colleges, you used to be a disciple of certain disciplines. Now, now you declare a major and you're just a student, but in the old days and even fairly recently, you were a disciple of a particular discipline or field of knowledge. And that meant you learned, you spent all your time in that, learning that particular field. So if you were going into law school, you would spend your entire time with the law professors and law students and you would not go anywhere else. But now that we've generalized education a bit more, you, people interact a lot more. And this has kind of fallen by the way. But a disciple, when you read it in the New, in the New Testament, literally means a learner. A learner from a particular teacher in most cases. And this is what would happen in the Jewish system. You would have a rabbi and you would spend your time with that rabbi. You would spend all your time with that rabbi that you could possibly spend with them, and you would learn. You would be the disciple of that rabbi. And you would and be... Still goes on, oh, it still goes on. We still, we still see it technically in many churches. There are people who follow a pastor more than they follow a denomination because they like what the pastor teaches, and they go, I like this, 
I like this uh, pastor. I, I want to hear as much as I can from this pastor. And I'm not going to say there's something wrong with that because Paul says men, men, you have many teachers but only one father when he's talking to the Corinthians. He goes, I am the one that you should be listening to primary. You can listen to other teachers, but I am the one that got you on the road. I'm the one that started you. You need to be listening to my teaching. Well, there's, a, there's an avenue because if you do listen to multiple teachers, you can be confused frequently. Now, if you're with somebody who says, I'm the only one you can t listen to, you've got a problem. That's, not, that's going too far, too far the other direction. Well, too much into the cultic, the cultic heaven. But you should be focused at, at any one time on a particular pastor saying, this is who God has called me to. I have not changed churches very much in my lifetime other than when we moved, when the military moved us. But we would spend two, three years, wherever we went to for three years, we'd spend it almost the entire time usually in that one church. Uh, when I first moved here, I spent 12 years in the same church until I moved out here to be a pastor. When I was in Baltimore, I spent 10 years in the same church. When I was in Sacramento, I spent 8 or 10 years, whatever I lived there, in the same church. Because God said, I'm calling you and you need to be submitted to this person. And what ends up happening in most people is... They get, uh, the pastor says something they don't like or says something hard that they don't want to get and they go and say, okay, that's it. This, this church is done. I'm going, to, I'm going to go somewhere else. And what they're really saying is I'm tired of this pastor. He said something I don't like. Or God said something I don't like and I don't want to hear it anymore. And they go someplace else until they hear something they don't like and then they bounce to another church. Are there times that God says go to a different church? Yes, there are times when God says, okay, it's time to go to another church. But that is going to be not every four or five years, like you see some people bouncing around churches. But here, Jesus is taking his disciples, and they're headed toward Jairus' house. And then it says in verse 20, Behold, a woman who was diseased with an issue of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched his garment. Sick for 12 years. And again, this is one in, in, in Mark, it tells us that she had spent all of her money trying to get healed. She had gone from doctor to doctor to doctor. Now, a lot of times we hear this and we go, well, yeah, well, their doctors didn't know anything back there. Well, their doctors were as educated as they could be for, most, for the most case. And they could do some pretty good things most of the time. But she had depleted her life's savings on this. And whether this was that uh, blood flowed from her or she was literally sick, we don't know probably it had to do with blood flowing because that would have been what would have made her unclean and, and so desperate to be healed that, that she did not ever get a stop on her menstruation cycle or something of that nature. And she's so desperate and she finds Jesus. And I love her attitude. It says, if I but touch his garment, I will be whole. I will be whole. If I just touch him. And again, going back to your question, did she have to touch him? Absolutely not. She could have just prayed and, and God could have healed her. Too many people, including many Christians, have this idea that they have to do something. Something has to be done for God to work. Physical action, physical, action, physical touch. 
when we're told, and even in there, you know, James tells us, if, are any of you sick, let them go into the elders and have the laying on of hands. It does signify power and transfer of power by touching. And there is a legitimate teaching in the scriptures that say, touch. You know, lay your hands on somebody and touch them because it is a very personal. It's not like making a phone call. I need you to pray for me, click. But there are people who are afraid of somebody outshining them. I had one person one time tell me, I, I could be a better Sunday school director than you. I'm going, okay, you have the church prove it and you can be church, you can be Sunday school director. I'm not, I'm not married to the position. God is sovereign. Yeah, that would be on how they approach you and stuff I've, I've been one, if somebody really thinks they can do it, number one, I know whether they can or can't in most cases because I can evaluate talent. But if they really thought they could and then the church wanted them, that's fine. Be my guest. You, you know, because I could be a teacher. I could be met running some other department. It doesn't matter. The point is, are we willing to do what God calls us to do? And do we know that we're doing what God calls us to do? And that's the first step doing what God has called us to do. When I came here, I knew God called me to this church. And when it was made very difficult for me to, to even candidate for it, I'm going, I know God's called me to the church, and I persevered through through it, and now the ones who made it difficult uh, outside of the church are going to go, well, you were, you were just what the church needed at this time. Now, will I be what the church needs 20 years from now or 10 years from now or five years from now or even next year? I don't know. That's for God to decide. But we need to be humble enough to back off and say, God, you're raising somebody up. Fine. What, what would you like me to do? We also need to be ready to step forward and do what God has called us to do and, and take defense on that. And Paul's job was to build churches and then he left. But he still always was saying, I'm the one that started this church. I'm going to keep my finger on it. I'm going to keep tabs on how you're doing because I care for you. And there's always people that are envious of people that are doing a good job and they're wishing them harm because they don't like the fact that they're doing well. And there's those who have so much pride that they can't let anybody else <laughs> look good. And both are, both are major problems, and we need to stay humble, we need, but we need to also stay, when God says to do something, we stay forward and work at doing it. And nothing's worse than you have somebody, and you know they're going to be a good teacher, and they go, oh, no, I could never be a teacher. That side is going too far into false hum humility. And if God is building you up, then, then step forward. And as many pastors have said, how do you find out what you're called to do? Well, first off, you go do some things. <laughs> oh, God, I want you to tell me what I'm supposed to do in the church. And then you have the Sunday school director come up. You know, Would you like to be a Sunday school teacher? Oh, no, can't. God hasn't told me to do that. You want to be a deacon? Nope, nope, God hasn't told me to do. You know, Would you like to be the, the, the gardener? Nope, nope. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's just going out and saying, committing to do something for three to six months and saying, wow, I really love that. And if you loved it, it's probably something you're called to do. Or you start doing it for three or four months and you go, man, I can't stand this job. I can't wait for this, this stint to end. And I've seen both sides of it. You think somebody might be a good teacher, you put them in a class and it's not for them. But the reason I also say that you should look at doing something for three to six months is if you're doing something God wants you to do, Satan is going to work hard at getting you to quit. And if you're called to be a teacher, you're going to find it hard to teach at first. Number one, you're trying to work yourself into something new. And if it's teaching in a church, there's going to be the spiritual battles going on. Uh, we saw this with the women's uh, event. 
Amy and my wife and Annie all had rough times leading up to the women's luncheon. Why? Because Satan doesn't want our women meeting together and having fellowship and having a Bible study uh, any more than, than they already are. Because, so things happen. Things got pressure. All the time things like that happen. As a pastor, there's, there are certain weeks and days where things just, everything seems to go wrong, and it's like, oh, and you just, you want, and one side of you just wants to throw in the towel because you know what's going on, and the other side says, nope, be persistent. Which is why I say, you know, you want to try something for three to six months so that you get over the learning curve and see the good, good times. And then if, it, then if it's not for you, you say, well, it just wasn't for me. Because when we ask somebody to help, we're not looking for them to make a rest of their life decision. Because that's not going to be the case. God will bring other people in the church and might do a better job. You may be the person to, to be the stopgap until somebody else comes in that's better at it. We never know what's going on. But we need to be willing to serve, willing to step forward. The woman touched her and because she said, if I touch his garment, I will be made whole. Again, this idea of... Um, back in Matthew, I'm sorry. Back to Matthew chapter 9. And she goes, I just want to touch him, if I can touch him. And I, and I love it when, when and Mark really says that he felt virtue leave him. He felt that something had, power had moved through him. Now, we've talked about the idea of touching for, for prayer and everything. And there is a very big phenomenon that happens oftentimes when you lay your hands on somebody and pray for them. Many times you can feel the Spirit of God moving through that touch. Not every time, not all the time, but oftentimes I have had that happen where you know, and those are the people you know have been healed. There's not even a question in my mind that they've been healed because I've actually felt that move. This is what Jesus said when this woman touched him. Power has left. Power has moved out of me into somebody else. There is a, a power in touch that works. And this is why probably the Jairus is saying, I want you to go touch my daughter. The other guy understood total authority because he was a man under authority. And he knew that he's, if he just told somebody to do it, they were supposed to do it. And he understood that kind of authority and that kind of power. That was also, though, a difference between Roman, Roman way of thinking and Jewish way of thinking. And this is something that has to be taken in consideration, too, as we look at these stories. But, and Jesus turned to her and says, Daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has made you whole. And she was made whole from that time. Can you imagine being sick for 12 years and instantaneously you're healed? I love to pray for people for healing because I've seen so many healings in my lifetime that, that people have been healed from prayer. I believe that God still heals today because I've seen him heal today. There are a number of people that I know that they believe that all the gifts of the Spirit died out with the apostles. There's no such thing as healing and tongues and, and all these different things. And I disagree with them totally. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He did all these miraculous things in the Old Testament. He did them all through Jesus and the apostles during the New Testament period. And he is still doing miraculous things. Why? Because he wants the glory. He gets the glory. When we pray for somebody and they get healed, we go, God is the one that gives you glory. I'm not going to go build some, some healing ministry. Come, come get healed by being prayed for. I believe in prayer, but 
we're not going to draw, you know, that's not what you do because Christ needs to be healed. Uh, he needs to be lifted up, not healed. <laughs> but this person is healed in a miraculous way, in a, in a way that would be really touching. Now, this is a person who's poured out all their money trying to get healed, and all of a sudden, they're healed. Probably in, in, in Jewish circles and stuff, it wasn't a good idea for him to go and test. She should not have touched him, and he shouldn't have touched her. If she had some issue with her blood, she was unclean. She was unclean. So she was actually taking her life in her hands by reaching out to touch him. That was an act of faith right there. Yeah. Everything about her was a huge act of faith. The fact that she should not have been touching him and that she did, you know, was a big one then because she could have been killed just for even wanting to come up to him, uh, approaching him too close. So everything about this is a huge act of faith and we're seeing big acts of faith here Jairus says come come my daughter's dying I need I need you to touch her the woman but you know that's the most amazing thing about this how many of us when we're in the busyness of running around trying to get things accomplished would have even stopped to deal with this woman most of us would not do it I know that I have a problem with that that I get so focused on what I'm going to do that I just keep going and doing it. Yeah, but that was the reason why Jesus was here, to get these people. But the point is, he's on his way to Jairus' house, to a girl who's dying, and he stops in the middle of going somewhere to help somebody to minister to this woman. The point I think I'm making is Jesus is saying, pay attention to what God's appointments are for us. And I've told people, and I'm getting better as time goes on, but I've, I've, I've always told people, if I walk past you in the grocery store, don't take it personal because I go to a grocery store for one reason, to buy groceries and get out. I have walked past people. I have done all kinds of things because my goal is to get in and out as fast as possible. Now, I have gotten better. I look around a little bit more, and I will say hi to people that I say that I meet, and I may even talk to them for a little while. But this is what Jesus is showing here in this, this thing. Don't get so busy with your work that you've got focused on that you can't minister somewhere else. Because too many times, and I know for a fact that I've, well, I can't know for a fact, but I'm absolutely sure that I have walked past people who needed ministering to because I was so focused on what I was going to do. And it doesn't mean just the grocery store. It could be anything. How many times have you driven down the road and, and somebody's off on the side and had God say, pull over and help this person? It's happened to me. Not every single time I see somebody pulled over. Maybe not even as often as it probably should have. <laughs> but we get so busy that we sometimes will go past people who do need help to be ministered to because we're so focused on something good. Jesus could have said, I don't have time to help this woman. I've got to heal this. I've got to get over there and get this girl before she dies. Would have been a legitimate statement. Most of us probably would have said that. We're, we're headed over to this person who's dying. Not all these other people that, <laughs> that are around me. We need to be very careful. And I think that's the whole purpose of this story, the way it's embedded in the middle of another story, is to point out, take time to meet God where he's at and take care of what needs to be taken care of. Don't be so focused on what you think you need to get done and ignore what God has put in your path. I've told a story. There was a man who used to do the men's breakfast at College Park uh, Baptist Church. 
He would go out to buy the groceries for the men's breakfast on Friday night. It would take him four, almost four hours to go buy the groceries for the, for the men's breakfast. Why? Because he was looking at people to talk to and, and, and minister to, invite to, the, invite to the, uh, the breakfast. I go and I'm out within 20 minutes. Uh, is that good or bad? I don't know. I don't know whether one's right or one's wrong. I just know that I'm, but I am learning to pay more attention to people to be open to the opportunities to minister. But I am just like everybody else, and I'm a driven person. I, I have every personality that says you get things done and you get it done quickly. And, but Jesus was one he's saying, reach out <laughs> and minister. Let's see, verse uh, 23. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the minstrels and the people making noise. This happened when somebody died in Israel, especially back in those days. The family would actually hire people to make a lot of noise. And the more noise that was made, the more you cared for the person who had died. Uh, and because in Israel, they, they, when you died, you were buried that same night. You did, not, you did not go to the funeral home. You did not go through all this. You, were, you died, you were, you were put in the grave. And so he gets to the house, and these people are wailing and crying and playing music and, and all these stuff that's going on. And Jesus shows up. Now you can picture Jairus. He's already been told by his servant, according to Mark, his servant had come out and met them and say, don't bother the master, she's dead. Uh, you know, you know, it's too late. <laughs> now, you, you didn't get to him fast enough. He didn't get here fast enough. It's too late. Just, you know, just leave him alone. You, you know, tell him to go about his business. Obviously, Jairus' wife has already been hiring the whalers, and they, maybe they'd had him on, on standby, and uh, she's already starting the funeral processes. And Jesus' answer to him and, and Mark was, she'll be okay. <laughs> she'll be okay. The very words he wants to hear, but he's just been told his daughter's dead. And Jesus said, it's not a problem. We're going to take care of it. Yeah. And then they get there and the people go, well, she's dead. What are you going? And, and he says, she's not dead. She sleeps. Now, you got to think about this. Remember just a couple, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Jesus on the boat with the disciples. He's sleeping. He says, we're going to the other side. The disciples wake him up and he stops the storm and he chides them for not having enough faith. Now remember what we said about that event. Many of the disciples were fishermen. When they said the boat was sinking, the boat was sinking. Okay? They were the expert sales, sailors at this particular time. They knew when a boat was sinking and when it was going to stay up or, or go down. And Jesus said, you, I said we were going to the other side. You should have believed me. Here he's talking to the people and they're going, these people are the ones that do the wailing for the dead. They're the ones that are getting ready to bury the dead. They know what death looks like. And when Jesus comes along and he hasn't even seen the girl yet and says she's not dead, she's asleep, they are having a field day with that. The experts. She was dead, but she wasn't dead. <laughs> One of the things you always have to be careful of is dealing with experts. <laughs> Because experts can never be wrong in their own mind anyway, even though they're wrong a lot. These are experts in death, and they're going, she's dead, she's gone, she's not there. Does anyone talk about in the Bible about 
people other than Christ bringing bringing people sleeping back to life? There's nobody else but Christ. Well, in resurrections, you had uh, Elisha that that raised the uh, widow's uh, child. You had the uh, Elisha that did the same thing. Yeah, there's plenty. Of, there's other resurrections. Yeah, there's other resurrections. Not very, not a whole lot. Not a whole lot, but there are other resurrection stories, and healing stories, and and miraculous stories, and uh, so yeah, it's not uncommon because it's showing God's power. Um, Jesus, of course, did it several times, but even even Paul when. Uh, when he's preaching in the upper room in the, for the uh, midnight hour and the guy falls out of the window and Paul goes down and prays for him and he gets up and, and they go back and have them continue their, their service. So yeah, it's all through the scriptures there's resurrections. And if you read enough biographies, you will hear of missionaries and, and people that have had resurrections in their, in their ministries because God's power is as long as he's lifted up, God's willing to do that power. Uh, and and show his power by over death. So, again, he has to be he has to be built up. He has to be lifted up from it all. But he says that the 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 maid sleeps, and it says they laughed him to scorn. Now you got to picture this. This is not just they laughed at what he said. Yeah, this is they are making fun of him. They laughed at him. It is more than just laughing at him. It is, well, who do you think you are? We saw this girl. You haven't even seen this girl, and you're saying that she's, that she's just sleeping. We know that she's dead. You know, we don't know who you are, and they are mocking him for making this statement. But you know, this is the same thing when he goes to see Lazarus at the end of this. End of this he goes, he's just asleep. He's been there. He's been in the grave. He's been in the tomb for three days, uh, four days at that point. He's, uh, and I love it when Martha, Mary, and Martha go. You know, he's been there for four days. He stinks by this time. <laughs> His body's already decomposing. He's going to stink. And you, we all know if you've ever been around anything dead for any length of time, they start to stink. And it doesn't take long for that smell to to be started. And the people laughed at Jesus. Think about this. How kind is Jesus in all these different activities? The people are making fun of him and laughing at him. He has the power just to unthink them into nothingness, to curse them, and yet he doesn't really do anything according to this. We think about this. How did he treat Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray him? And he knew who was going to betray him. And he never mistreated him. He never said a bunch of negative things to him. How do we know that? Because when he said one of you is going to betray me, all of them go, is it I, is it I, is it I? Because they've thought, it could, there's nobody in this group that's, that would be bad enough to, to betray Jesus. So at that point, it could have been any one of them. So we think about this. How did he treat Judas? How does God treat people that are totally against him? He still loves them and gives them every opportunity to turn back to him. It's an example of who and what we are supposed to be like when we minister to others. How many of us mistreat somebody because we think they're going to do something wrong to us? We, we try to get preemptive. 
We don't even wait for them to do something wrong. We, we get preemptive. You, know, you stay away from me. I don't want you anywhere near where you can hurt me. We all tend to do that. We kind of laugh about it, but we do that kind of stuff. Stay away. You might hurt me. <laughs> you, you, I think you're going to hurt me because when you, you know. But Jesus, knowing these things, still loved the people and ministered to them and was kind to them and loving to them. When Peter denied Jesus and he went back to him on the, on the shore, the, you know, Peter, do you love me? Come back. I, I love you. I still love you. I love you enough to come back and talk to you. Come back. God is that way. He is so merciful with us. <laughs> says it all through, all through the scriptures. That his mercy endures forever. He loves us so much that he's going to draw us back. And when we fail, and because he knows we're going to fail, he does not put us back at the beginning and say, you get to start all over again and prove to me that you love me. No, he says, you've asked for forgiveness, let me restore you. I'm going to restore you. That is the most amazing thing about it. It's, it's amazing that he loves us no matter what. That when we fall, he forgives us. But as we as humans, we say, okay, you, you fail, you messed up, you're going back to square one at the bottom of the ladder. You get to reclimb the ladder and prove to me that you deserve it. And then maybe I'll put you in charge of something again. If you're really fortunate. And God says, no, I've forgiven you. It wasn't you in the first place, so here... You're back, you're back where, I, where you fell from. This is the love that God shows us and the mercy that he shows us. And it's to be our example on how we should love others. And then it says in Jesus, uh, verse 25, But when the people were put forth, he went in and took there by the hand, and the maid arose. And this is the picture of Jesus. It is said that they emptied the house. All the mourners get out of the house. <laughs> Why? Because they were, they were laughing at him. I think he wanted some peacefulness. He wanted that peacefulness. And Mark tells us that Peter, James, and John went in with him. And they went into the room and watched, the mother and father. And Jesus, in Mark tells us, he spoke. He said, daughter, arise. Daughter, arise. And she sat up. Can you imagine the parents looking at this? They're ready to, they're ready to be carrying her off in a, common, uh, a coffin out to the, to the tombs. And all of a sudden, Jesus just speaks very quietly, daughter, arise. And she sits up. And it doesn't tell us whether she knew anything had happened or anything. But then Jesus said, go, go get her some food. Go, go feed her. Obviously, she woke up hungry. She's been sick. She's been lying on a deathbed, probably hadn't eaten at least for a day, if not more. And Jesus says, feed her. The second part of being fed was to show that she was actually healed. Because what's the last thing you, when you, if you've been sick for a day or two and you haven't really eaten and you really start feeling healthy, do you feel like eating? you're hungry, but do you really feel like having a meal at that point? Not usually. Yes, some people do. Some people are a little, you know, some people are on meat and eat anytime, anywhere, anything. But most people are feeling very weak and they start with some tea and some soup or something really light. And Jesus said, go get her food. Go get her food. We're going to show you that not only is she back from the dead, but she is healthy. Give her substance. 
When Jesus healed people, it was a complete healing. He made it that they were ready to get back on with life. We talked about Peter's mother being, being healed. And the first thing she did when she got healed was to get up off of her sick bed that she'd been on for a while and immediately went and made dinner for everybody. Jesus he does a healing and it is complete and people are able to function. We, in the previous chapter, we were talking about the demoniac man that had the legion of demons in him. When he was healed, he was, the people from town came and they found him clothed and in his right mind, which I love the way they put that, in his right mind. This was a guy that they considered a lunatic. Every time they saw him, they were in fear of him. Every time they saw him, they were trying to bind him and change. And the power of the demons were breaking the chains and he would chase them and, and beat them. And when they come up here, here, here he is sitting on down into the feet of Jesus, clothed and paying attention to the master. That had to have been very bizarre to them because this is a man that they had never seen, you know, or, or had been a long time anyway since they had seen, the sitting there. Probably, probably fearful at first. And in Jesus' case, he begged Jesus, can I go with you? Can I be one of your disciples? I want to go with you. And Jesus said, no, stay here until the people what what has happened many times it's better for us to stay where god has healed us in so that we can minister to the to the world because what happens when we get saved when we first get saved we usually know lots of lost people that we can minister to and give the gospel to after a few years Number one, your unsaved friends if you still have them have kind of pushed you off aside because you're too much of a nut for them because you're always talking about Jesus and they don't want to talk about Jesus all the time and, and you're not sinning just like they are so they're not really, they're uncomfortable around you. And so you go to church and you start picking up Christian friends. After a few years of being a Christian, unless you're purposing to get out amongst the world, there's not a lot of people for you to witness to. Jesus did it several times. He told this man that was the demoniac, stay here witness. This woman at the well in Samaria, he said, stay here and share. Oftentimes he told the people to stay where they're at and it's a greater impact when you're first, especially when you're first saved, to stay where you're at and minister. One thing I do appreciate about being back in the workforce outside of the church is that there are people that I can talk to that are lost. Now, not many of them have gotten saved yet, but they know that I'm going to give them the gospel. They know that I'm going to give them something, something. It's important for us to find people that need the message. And we give them the gospel message. Not just share, not just try to get them to come to church or read their Bible or pray, but to give them the gospel message. We are lost sinners deserving punishment and Jesus died for our sins. That message does not go over well with a lot of people. A lot of people go, well, that's narrow, that's bigoted, and all these other things that they're going to tell you. Our job is just to tell them. The Spirit's job is to convict them when they're told. And the fun part is when you get to lead somebody in the prayer for uh, asking Jesus to come into their heart. And then you get the real job, and that's to disciple them and to encourage them to start coming to church and, and read their Bible and, and spend time with Christians. That's when the fun part really happens. But Jesus healed this little girl. All because her father had enough faith to go ask Jesus to come. 
And it says in verse 26, And the fame hereof went abroad to all the land. Miracles get sounded forth. When a miracle happens, people, number one, share it. Because you know that you got healed, you're going to share that you got healed. If you, if you needed a big financial blessing and all of a sudden a big financial blessing comes in, you usually share it with people and say, look what God has done. Especially if it's anonymous, you find, you'll share it because it was such a miraculous thing. This girl was healed. <laughs> totally healed. She was brought back to life. And you could hear that. You could imagine that story going out. Man, you know what that man that from, Naz that man from Nazareth named Jesus did? He, he, that girl was dead and she came alive. We already see what happened when he was healing people, what happened with the word going out. When he heals Lazarus, uh, uh, resurrects Lazarus, the word really gets out. And if you read the story carefully, the scribes and Pharisees are trying to figure out how they can kill Lazarus as well because Lazarus' testimony is the testimony of how powerful Jesus of Nazareth is. So they want to get rid of both of them. These guys were jealous. These guys had envy of no, to no end. There's somebody coming in being more powerful than them, and they are upset. But when things happen, this story goes out. In a church, when somebody gets healed and they start praising God, the church hears about it, and oftentimes the rest of the world, you know, the rest of the area heals about it if it's a big enough healing. And it draws people. You know, if people want to come just because of healing, that's fine. I'll take it. I'll take whatever you, God uses to get them as long as he's lifted up. And so did Jesus. Because if that's, how if that's what it takes for them to come to me, he says, I'm willing to let that be the case. He's going to let them come to him and be ministered to, even if they were coming for the wrong reasons, it gave them an opportunity to share. And this is something that is important for us to consider. When we open our mouths, we may be talking to somebody who has no understanding, doesn't even care, but God has given us an opportunity to share, so we share. People may come to you for the wrong reasons, you know, and you share. I love Annie's example. She gets people who call the wrong number and she shares the gospel with them. Yeah. She has, tele, you know, telemarketers have got to stop calling Annie because she witnesses to the telemarketers before she lets them off the phone. Uh, you know. Do all of us take that kind of attitude to, to those opportunities? Or we're we just saying, well, you bothered my evening. You bothered my evening, go away. How many opportunities have we missed sharing the gospel with that attitude? I'm, I'm just as guilty as everybody else you know, with that attitude. I know there's opportunities that I have missed. Because usually I think about the opportunity three hours later and go, wow, I should have said this to that person or I should have done this. But the more we're concentrating on how can I minister to people, the more often we're going to step into that ministering of people. In the book Experiencing God by, by Blackaby, he said that you need to look for opportunities, find out where God is and join him on what he's doing. Don't get so focused on what we want to be doing and get stuck on it. There are a lot of churches, a lot of ministries, lots of Christians who say, God, I'm over here taking care of this really nice thing. And God said, but I'm over here where I want you to be ministering. And sometimes we can be doing things that are good and losing out on the best. And Satan likes to get us doing that. 
He wants us as Christians to be doing, because he st can't stop us from being a Christian. Okay, if we become a Christian, his next step is to get us just sitting on our butts doing nothing. If he can't get us to sit around doing nothing, he says, let me just get them doing busy, busy, good stuff. And we could be doing really busy, good stuff. And God's saying, I'm over here. I've got a really, I've got the best over here for you. And we're going, God, I've got my food bank over here and my bus ministry and I'm teaching this class and I got this, that, and the other thing. And God's saying, yeah, but I've got thousands of souls over here if you would just come over here and do this. And Satan says, nah, just stay real busy. Stay, you're, you're doing really good stuff. You can't, you can't stop what you're doing because it's good. We need to be very careful that we don't get so busy doing good that we miss the best. And this is something that's very true. And, and all of us, have you been in church any length of time? I got wrapped up into this. You're getting so busy doing everything that needs to be done that I didn't do anything hardly well. And I felt burnt out and tired all the time. And God's saying, I didn't tell you to do all that stuff. We need to be listening to him. What is he telling us to do? What is he sharing us to do? If you're doing what God has called you to do, you are generally going to be happy with what you're doing. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have those times when everything seems to be going wrong. I love being a pastor. But there are times when it's like, oh man, not another, another thing going on. Not another time that I'm having struggles studying, whatever it might be. But I know that I'm doing what God has called me to do. And it's like, okay, Satan, I'm not, gonna, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. I know what I'm supposed to be doing, and I am not going to stop. The key is to know that you're doing what God wants you to do. And then remember that usually it's a good, good experience. When I was teaching Sunday school, I loved teaching Sunday school. It was a fun job to teach Sunday school. I loved to teach. <laughs> and, but there were those weeks when it was hard to study. Mostly because I was working in restaurants. <laughs> Get an 80-hour work week and then try to study for the Sunday school class was a pretty tough thing sometimes. And that was Satan trying to stop me from going forward in what I was supposed to be doing. Satan does not like it when we go forward with God. And he will try to stop us. We need to stay focused on God and go forward. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity. Lord, we thank you that you still work and you still do the miraculous, Lord, that, and that you care for us and that you are our leader. We ask that you help us to see what you would have us to see. Help us to learn what you're calling us to do so that we will have absolute confidence that we're doing what you want us to do. And Lord, if there's anybody that listens to this on the Internet that doesn't know you, we ask that they will accept you as their Lord and Savior. Recognize they're a sinner. Recognize they deserve punishment. Recognize that you paid that price and make you their Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.